Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We need to begin to coalesce around the reality of a shared future, and I think institutions like ours have a vital role to play. And our focus should be much more on figuring out how we continue to be of service, how we participate and help frame a dialogue, how we encourage people to see the world differently. We need to figure out what does it mean for us to be a brave space that's fully invested and fully involved in the fabric and dialogue of our communities. That's Randall Suffolk, the Nancy and Holcomb T. Green Jr. Director of Atlanta's High Museum of Art. Since his appointment there six years ago, he's been intent on making the museum more inclusive, and the High increased its participation by Black, Indigenous, and people of color from 15% in 2015 to over 50% in 2019. He's accomplished this by reducing admission fees, diversifying its exhibition schedule, added more than 2,700 objects to the collection and reinstalling much of it, collaborating with nearly 30 community partners annually, and developing new programming to serve its increasingly diverse, multi-generational audience. Before joining the High, Rand served as director of Philbrook Museum of Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and as director of the Hyde Collection in Glen Falls, New York. He holds a master's in art history from Bryn Mawr College, in higher education administration from Columbia University, and a bachelor of arts degree from Connecticut College. Rand, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Max. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to, and I'm hoping you can bring us up to date a bit on Atlanta, how it's faring. Atlanta's doing pretty well, and I think we've managed probably and thankfully better than many cities around the country. I think people have, by and large, behaved themselves in terms of CDC guidance and so forth. I mean, it's right here in our backyard, so I think we kind of have a tendency perhaps to pay attention to what they say. As a community, I think it's managed to keep itself moving forward. We're essentially back to normal in most respects. You've been a peripatetic fellow. You grew up in Akron, Ohio, and then moved at the age of 15 with your family to Rome for three years, the one in Italy, not Georgia. How did that experience shape you moving to Italy as a teenager? Candidly, I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I don't believe I'd be half the person I am today if I'd not been given that opportunity. Remember, I was a small town boy, I actually grew up in a little town called Talmadge, just outside of Akron. Honest to God, cornfields in my backyard, all that sort of thing. The, the first time I ever got on an airplane was to fly to Rome, Italy. And what I've told people in the past is that it's not so much the fact that it expanded my worldview, is that for the first time it gave me a worldview. And so I think that was immensely important to me. In terms of what I do for a living now, I, you know, to be honest with you, my mother tried very hard to introduce me to things and make sure she pointed out this architecture or that artwork and various museums and so forth. But, you know, I was a 16 or 17 year old kid and that wasn't altogether that important to me. But nonetheless, I think some version of osmosis was at play. You can't be around that much beauty and history every single day and not have it somehow be absorbed into your consciousness. And, I, and from that standpoint, I think it, it changed me profoundly. I had a similar experience living in Europe as a kid for a couple of years, and it definitely set me on a path and similar to yours. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, my goal had been to go to graduate school for art history and become a professor. Uh, Bryn Mawr was a great program. They could pay for me to go to school, but they couldn't pay for me to live. And I was, you know, working probably 30 hours a week just trying to pay my rent. And you know, you can't be a full-time graduate student and a full-time employee somewhere else for very long without getting burnt out. And so ultimately, I decided I'd finish my master's degree, take a little bit of a break, 
try and find some employment to help pay off my credit card debt and so forth. And then I would ultimately go back and finish my PhD and be off to the races. I ended up during that break, so to speak, applying for a curatorial position at a small museum in upstate New York called the Hyde Collection. I was fortunate enough to get that job. Three years later, I was the deputy director, and a year later, I was the director of the museum. And so I never really looked back. So that wasn't initially the plan, uh, but in retrospect, I'm certainly grateful that that ultimately was the path I was able to take. Not too many of us actually had a plan that we started and we finished exactly the same way. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) And especially Midwestern, Northeastern education, and you land in Tulsa, Oklahoma. What was that like? Tulsa was fantastic. If you had told me a couple years before the move that uh, my family would be migrating to what I affectionately call the big middle, I never would have believed it. But we were there for nearly a decade, and we loved our time there. Tulsa is a remarkable city, and the people we met, some of the, the best people on the face of the planet. And the Philbrook Museum of Art is an extraordinary institution and organization there's an incredible legacy of great governance there and, and community support. And the work that we were able to do there was, I think, very exciting and, and meaningful in the community. So I, I like to tell people there's part of me and candidly my family, you know, we part of us will always be proud Tulsans by choice. So it was a good spot to be. It's exotic for a lot of Northeasterners, Tulsa. That is to say, I went there, as you were called, for a museum director's conference and was very impressed with both Philbrook and the Gilcrease and, the, as you say, the city writ large. What do you think makes it distinctive in that part of the country? You know, I think there's, if you, if you look at the, the middle of the country, there's a, a number of cities. You know, I think Houston, Fort Worth, uh, Tulsa, Kansas City, you know, these are institutions where there's a history of very intelligent, entrepreneurial individuals that have managed to make a great deal of money, but don't particularly care so much about the world outside and the perception of them. They're really there and they've made a lot of money, but they also embrace this notion that if I make my money here, I'm going to reinvest it in my community. And they, they build things really just for themselves. You know, they, they want to have extraordinary communities and resources but they're not doing it because they're looking over their shoulder to see what another community is doing or in competition with someone else. There's just this incredible culture and tradition of philanthropy there that I don't think that you see in a lot of other communities. And Tulsa is a great example of that. It's remarkable the way in which those individuals, the the leaders, the civic leadership in that community for generations has been astonishing. Then, Rand, you got to the High Museum, and you pretty much immediately turned your attention to an issue that is now very much on the minds of every museum in the country, but at the time was just one of many issues, and that was diversifying audiences, diversifying collections, diversifying the board, the staff. And I'll post a link to a study you undertook to review the changes you made after you arrived at the High through fairly recently. Can you talk a bit about what led you to pursue all of these changes? I think that I was brought here because that's, that was a hope and aspiration of the organization even before I arrived here. But I would say this, just going back to a little bit of that personal history, you know, I'm not the director of the high because the first, as I said, the first half of my career was not as an extraordinary or hotshot curator. 
you know, I did not build my reputation on the fact that I was a great generator of scholarship or an amazing art historian. What I've done throughout the course of my career has really focused primarily on that missionary work and, and focusing on changing organizations to become hopefully, as I like to say, profoundly different magnets within their community. And when I came to the high, I think what I found was an institution which everyone across the board would acknowledge was exceptional. There's an incredible history of achievement here and a legacy of aspiration. But yet very few people would have characterized us as being essential within the community. And so if you think about the work that we've been striving to do over the course of the past five and a half years, it's how do you take this incredible and again, universally considered exceptional organization and turn it into this vital, necessary, and essential part of the fabric of our community. And so that's really the work that we've been dedicated to during that time period. From a mission standpoint, our responsibility, as all art museums, our responsibility is to encourage the broadest public engagement possible. I mean, full stop. From a mercenary standpoint, it really was a sustainability question for us. When I came to the museum, we had about 15% BIPOC participation at the museum. In a city like Atlanta, which is 51%, Metro Atlanta is 51% minority majority, you know, that was unconscionable for us. We couldn't afford from a mission standpoint or a business standpoint to ignore the majority of our audience. And so that really began to formulate a set of marching orders for us. You know, we needed to figure out how we could define a new degree of relevance, how we could earn a different kind of credibility within our community, and how ultimately we could really begin to engage the next two generations of end users for this institution. So from a sustainability standpoint, we knew that we could continue to be a vibrant part of this great city. Rand, one of the many tactics you used was reducing admissions fees. Did you do much research before making that change, or was it more out of principle? I think it was probably both. Shortly after I got here, one of the things that we, I think, rededicated ourselves to being was a better listening organization. And one of the things that I heard again and again when I first got here was the fact that we were too expensive. You know, we were, our admission fees were out of whack with the marketplace. And I heard this from, you know, people in general members, the public, trustees and staff. And so we, we took a good look at what we were doing. And Ultimately, the analysis was that, you know, we were scaring a bunch of people away, telling them that the ticket price was $19.50 to visit. But if you really looked at the data, we had so many discounts in the marketplace that ultimately our average ticket price was under $12. And so then we actually brought in a local firm to do some very intentional listening on campus and in our facilities to find out what the market, what the true value proposition was there. And that led us to reduce at the time to reduce, to move to a one price model. We reduced our fees from $19.50 down to $14.50 and we became ruthless. If you were five and under, you got in free. Everyone else, we were ruthless in charging you that Mm $14.50. Two things happened. Uh, One, I think from a feedback loop standpoint, it was an important signal to let our public know that we were listening and that we were willing to react and respond. The second thing, though, that I think it did was it gave us an opportunity to talk about candidly about the fact that here's why we weren't going to waive admission fees, right? It's important for us, I think, as a nonprofit organization to remind people that for us, money isn't evil. You know, money is the the fuel for our mission. 
And every dollar we get, you know, our goal is to use it as creatively and responsibly as we can to deliver on that mission and generate impact. And so that there was a very good opportunity for us to do that in a very public way. The, ultimately, that first year, we ended about 20% ahead of our projected revenue from a budget standpoint, admissions-wise. Um, so it was very positive. And then, as I said, it, 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 I think it was a really important signal to our community. But it wasn't the silver bullet that suddenly changed uh, the demographics of the institution. But it contributed to what was an extraordinary shift in how you diversified the audience and brought forward over half of your audience being people of color. That isn't something that's been paralleled in other museums around the country. We did it in Dallas, I will admit, because when we went free in Dallas, we had an extraordinary growth in audiences of color. But it's not typical, right? I, I don't think so, unfortunately. But for us, it was really one gesture and hopefully a very a significant series of gestures and decisions that, as I said before, ultimately were driving at earning this different kinds of credibility in our community. You know, that was one small piece. At the same yeah. time we were doing that, we, you know, if you look at our exhibitions over the course of the past five years, 62%, in fact, you know, more than half of those exhibitions either highlight or focus on, not a token this or token that, but highlight or focus on important work by women artists, BIPOC artists, or LGBTQ plus artists, right? If we're going to reflect the audience that we serve, it's going to start with one of the most tangible aspects of our mission, and that's the artwork that we put on display. Same can be said with our the collecting habits at the institution. We spent nearly $6 million to do a complete reinstallation of our permanent collection that we unveiled late in 2018. Again, in an effort to reflect not only the diversity of the collection that we had built over the previous 10 years, but also the new audience that we had worked so hard to attract during the, the you know, the, the more recent aspect of that. We wanted people to see themselves reflected in their institution. And so it really was, I think, a series of things that we put together that, that's helped drive that change. How has your board reacted to the changes that you proposed and made? They're a group of leaders that are very committed to ensuring that the high as an institution continues to be a, a very relevant part of this community. And so I've it, ever since coming here, whether it's been our board or our staff, there's never really been a moment where I have felt that people have been digging in their heels and saying, listen, that's not the way we do things around here. Everyone has been very open-minded and I think excited about trying to define what's next for us as an organization. But back from the days, even of Ned Rifkin onto Michael Shapiro, there was a tradition at the high of big shows. I would assume that the board and several of the stakeholders got used to that. And you came in and said, let's go easy on blockbuster shows. You have an upcoming Calder Picasso exhibit, which feels like an exception, but you have favored, as you said, other types of displays. How important is admissions revenue from special exhibitions to the bottom line? And what else is in your thinking about exhibitions in general? Well, the revenue is, is significant. As I said, every dollar is important for us. But we're blessed with a pretty balanced set of revenue streams that provide the stability and the growth that we need. So we're not overly dependent on that. In fact, we've worked very hard to not become dependent on that in any way. For me, when I got here, I was able, I think, to demonstrate based on some historical analysis that we did 
to our board, some of those board members, as you said, who were particularly fond of those major quote-unquote blockbuster exhibitions, that the change that we needed to make was not simply the new director style choice. Um, there was a real and very intentional sort of set of drivers, whether it was mission or business or otherwise, that necessitated a change of our business model. And listen, I understand why the museum embraced that, why the high embraced that model. You know, if you go back to 2005 on the other side of our major expansion with Renzo Piano, tripled the square footage of the institution. I think we wanted to send an important message to the rest of the world about what our aspirations were and how we wanted to be perceived. So I understand that. The problem is that, as you well know, you know, 20 years ago, the rest of the field was starting to come to the realization that by and large, those shows are, are like heroin. You do them once and it's so amazing. Gosh, we need to do it again. And we need to do it again and again. And you keep trying to pump more and more resources from an institutional standpoint into getting as high as you did that first time. And sometimes it works, but oftentimes it doesn't. And so you end up, you know, chasing something that is ultimately you're, you're developing and chasing one three-month brand after another because now everything you do has to be, you know, the Terracotta Warriors. And now everything you do has to be, you know, Louis Atlanta and everything you are. And, and when I think you kind of get out of, out of whack there, uh, you're forgetting to remind people that they can find what I like to call quality time every time at their institution, regardless of the special exhibition. The message you're giving isn't universally accepted. I think the pandemic revealed to museums around the country that not having a blockbuster show and being closed were possible both at the same time. In other words, because the revenue from tickets is not existential for art museums the way it is for the performing arts. So what do you think post-pandemic nationally will be happening around big shows? Well, I would hope that those big shows don't go away altogether. I mean, I think they're an important part of the mix. I mean, don't forget, we were one of the institutions that had the big Kusama show that was traveling around a few years ago. That was here. As you said, we've got this incredible Calder Picasso exhibition that we're opening and very proud of. We're thrilled and proud and humbled to be part of the Obama portraits tour that's happening and so forth. So I think those are important for us to do, but we're not going to base our entire business model on that. The flip side of that, from just an institutional standpoint, is that if you're continually chasing someone else's intellectual capital, then you're not really doing a lot to enable your own home team. We want our curators here at the high to be developing extraordinary exhibitions. We want to begin to evolve that sense of civic pride from the standpoint of, look what we can bring to Atlanta. Isn't that amazing? To look what our home team is delivering for Atlanta. And that's a process for us. And I think it's an, we, we're a continuous project in that respect, and we continue to work in that space. But I would hope that over time, the, the field writ large will begin to determine a different kind of balance to figure out how those shows can be an important part of your mix and drive attendance, but aren't necessarily what you're fully committed to as your, the primary driver of your business model. Yeah, what's upside down, of course, is that a generation ago, as museums were entering into this world of big shows, big expansions, an effort to be visible in Carol Vogel's column in the New York Times, <laughs> there was a national reach, a reach for national visibility and prominence. Part of what Black Lives Matter has done is to make museums around the country reboot and say, actually, we need to think first about who we're serving locally. Isn't that part of what's happening? 
Uh, I think very much so. I've been a director for 22 years, and uh, we're still wringing our hands about many of the same issues. And so if you look at change, if you look, it's very difficult to point to any measurable change that has happened field-wide. I mean, in some respects, again, it's unconscionable. And so I think the great benefit of the reckoning that happened last summer around race and, and justice has been an important moment for us to take a look in, at, at truly figuring out how do, we how do we define what's needed within our respective communities, and then how do we, we go about really changing ourselves to deliver on those promises in a sustained way. Isn't part of the issue that most museums in the past would look at the major museums in New York, San Francisco, and say, that's the model. We have to act like that. And therefore, it took a lot of museums down a garden path to emulating cities that had tens of millions of tourists. And that just isn't Atlanta. That isn't Tulsa. That isn't even Los Angeles in terms of cultural tourism or Chicago. Yeah, if we're talking about the... the Exhibition platform, I mean, absolutely. I think that that's, that's true. Um, organizations saw how profitable it could be in, in a certain circumstances, and we were oftentimes driven by that sense of, of optimism and, as I said before, sort of civic pride. And, and those moments are important for communities. I just, as I said, I don't think people realize the sort of the vicious cycle that you get into. My hope is that as we move forward, organizations will find a better balance um, overall in terms of the decisions that they're making. Rand, you mentioned early on the ways in which you've been reaching out. I'm curious about everything from the mayor's office to the community groups that you work with today, some of the efforts you've made to connect the high in new directions. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think one of the things that's uh, an important part of our DNA is collaboration. We probably partner with more than 30 different nonprofit organizations every single year at the museum. One of the things that perhaps sets us apart from many of our peers around the country is that I've asked our team to really spend only about 25% of their time uh, working on partnerships with other cultural organizations. You know, we're going to continue to do extraordinary things with the Alliance Theater here or with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra or with the ballet, opera, and so forth like only about 25% of our efforts and energy to go into that. The other 75% of that work, I would love for us to work with different types of nonprofit organizations. And the reason why I say that is that my experience has been that when you do that, it challenges you to think about your mission in very new and different ways. And the second thing is that ultimately, it, there's a much greater opportunity for you to engage different segments of your community than otherwise you would have had a chance to do. And so for us, that's been, I think, a very important part of earning that credibility that I was mentioning earlier, as well as the exposure to as many facets of our city as we can. And the civil rights movement, which in many ways found its greatest footing in Atlanta, is in the DNA of the city. How is that manifesting itself in your board, in some of the community groups you're working with, to put that front and center and part of the identity of the cultural scene? Within that context, I think we've been working very hard to be the museum that our city needs and expects. We've tried to just embrace the culture of this city and the expectations in many respects that Atlanta and its history presents us with. And hopefully we've been operating successfully within that space and that expectation. 
Starkitecture is not exactly on the ropes, but the high hired in the past two Pritzker Prize-winning architects, Richard Meyer and Renzo Piano, and representing in that a quest for distinction in the built environment. But they're formal buildings in some ways. How are you using the facilities and grounds more informally these days to match some of what you're saying is your objective in reaching audiences? I'll give you one example. Back in 2014, we launched what we called our Piazza Activation Initiative. Along with the Renzo Piano expansion in 2005, we have a beautiful piazza or public space right in the front of our entrance of the museum. And those initiatives were set up to explore how we could do a better job engaging with art and design beyond the museum's sort of formal walls, as you said. And so each year we do a site-specific installation that are presented out on the piazza to hopefully enliven the highs outdoor space and ultimately engage visitors of all ages. And last year, for example, we did a great program with, it was really a whimsical sculpture by the architecture firm Soil. But this summer, we're really excited about debuting an installation that I'm exceptionally proud of. And we're working with Bryony Roberts Studio. And she's creating a highly accessible sensory environment designed in conversation with self-advocates with disabilities from around the Atlanta community. And that's going to be, again, an extraordinary opportunity for us to hopefully encourage people to see the museum differently and to engage with us in a different fashion. There are some museums today around the world, as they think about expanding, that are looking not towards architectural distinction, but towards community-facing design. Part of what you're saying is you're adapting a campus you inherited that's beautiful and exceptional in a new way. Is that fair to say? I think so. Uh, But I also have to give a ton of credit to the past leadership at the institution, as well as the, the architect himself. I mean, the Renzo Piano spaces are really extraordinary and lend themselves to a variety of, of interactions and needs. And the Richard Meyer building continues to, I think it's aged extremely well. Both of those architects did a fine job at creating spaces that not only deliver on the presentation of our work standpoint, but also provide appropriate platforms of engagement otherwise for us. Rand, it's been a very challenging 15 months for museums, especially in the U.S., which are not supported by the government, typically. And there's a bit of disarray about priorities, particularly around deaccessioning. What are your thoughts about acceptable uses of funds from art sales? I'm pretty much a traditionalist in this respect. I would just say that I think that there's a significant amount of disinformation and misunderstanding out there around this topic. It's important, I think, for people to remember that when decisions were made to temporarily remove restrictions, the reasons that we did that, we were all at that time really looking at the great unknown. There was a tremendous fear around the impact of the pandemic. There were institutions of every size and shape and scale that were concerned about how they were going to protect their staff and, and keep themselves moving into the future. And candidly, everything that was proposed and embraced, again, in a temporary fashion, really fit hand in glove with our national accrediting body, you know, AAM, the American Alliance of Museums, their best practices when it comes to deaccessioning. Having said all of that, my concern with this whole topic is how do we protect the most vulnerable among us? And what I mean by that are really the nested organizations. If you are a city-owned and operated institution, if you are a college or university, museum, we need to ensure that 
no matter what the mothership or the umbrella organization does not or cannot in any way, shape or form think that that permanent collection is some form of a piggy bank to be monetized. Also, Rand, I think there were dire predictions by AAM about the likely closure of as many as one out of three museums, which have not come to pass. And by virtue of that, it's time, in my view, for AAMD to step back from this exception because it's led to some decisions in the short term that I think are not helpful. I think this is somewhat of a distraction. We've been speaking as a field about deaccessioning for decades at this point. But when division is increasingly the hallmark of our national moment, we need to begin to coalesce around the reality of a shared future. And I think institutions like ours have a vital role to play. And our focus should be much more on figuring out how we continue to be of service, how we participate and help frame a dialogue, how we encourage people to see the world differently. We need to figure out what does it mean for us to be a brave space that's fully invested and fully involved in the fabric and dialogue of our communities. For me, that is a much better use of our energy and the brain power that we have than adding too much emphasis to this one notion around deaccessioning at this time. As important as it is, in some respects, it's more of a distraction than it should be, given what's at stake. Well, Rand, I hope that as people start flying again, and Atlanta is once again the busiest airport in the world, or one of them, that they make time between flights and go see the high. And thank you for making time for today's conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks again very much for having me. I appreciate it being here. We've been speaking today with Randall Suffolk, the Nancy and Holcomb T. Green Jr. Director of Atlanta's High Museum of Art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.